chapter 1, being the church. At the age of six, I prayed a prayer of salvation. I'm sure I heard a sermon about hell and it scared me to action. I honestly don't remember. I mean, what kid would want to go there? So I did what any child would do to escape the thought of pain and suffering for eternity. Don't get me wrong, I remember being genuine and not wanting to go to hell, and even genuine in my desire to want this Jesus I was told about to be in my life. I recall being enamored with the notion that he died for me, but in a way, I guess I thought pleasing my parents, among others, would somehow alleviate the wrath of God in my life. Basically, I only prayed for salvation for what I could get, not what I could give. After I prayed, not much changed in my life, partly due to not understanding the reality of the gospel, but also because no one taught me that following Jesus only requires a willing and empty vessel. There is no age restriction on who can and can't be used. At the age of eight, probably after hearing another sermon about hell, I wanted to secure my eternal destiny again. So I went back to my mom and I asked her if we could pray the prayer again, just to make sure I was going to heaven. Now, I always had a sense of moral conviction between right and wrong, and for the most part, I was a pretty good kid. I got involved in the youth group, went on mission trips, youth camps, attended church two or three times a week or more, eventually became a leader in our, in our youth group, and even joined a church drama team where I often played the role of Jesus. That, that last one has to give brownie points, right? The truth is, those activities were really just a cover-up to what my life was really focused on, which was sports video games, working out, and girls. All the while, I felt like there was this empty cavity pulsating in my soul. It would come and go like waves on a beach as it never retreated without coming back. At the time, I had no clue what it was since my life looked like everyone else's in comparison. I thought I was normal, but I could never really shake the feeling that God was calling me to something more. I went to college because that's what all high school graduates are supposed to do, right? Then I married my high school crush, bought a home, became a dad, tried my best to conform to what I had always seen and heard Christians should do in life. We started building our quote-unquote American dream. In short, we looked similar to most young Christian families, so you wouldn't have ever known from the outside looking in that anything was wrong. Yet despite all my efforts to fill my cup, that pulsating feeling was still pounding within. At the age of 25, we began to attend a church on Sundays that offered a small group Bible study in someone's home during the week. It was with this small group that we really began to feel connected. Jen and I began to make friendships that encouraged us more than we would have thought otherwise. Especially for me, since I had the personality type that was content and actually preferred to be alone. These friends were becoming more like family to us as we became vulnerable with one another and active in each other's daily lives. For the first time in my life, I began to actually enjoy church instead of viewing it as just a chore or an obligation. Yet there was still this feeling that I was riding the train of someone else's faith, not my own. I was still being who I was expected to be. I didn't know anything else to really strive for since I rarely ever read the word. A little bit of background information on me that's important to know for moving forward, I wasn't a reader. I hated to read, and therefore gladly fell into the trap of just trusting what others would tell me the word said, rather than read it for myself. But there soon came a night where Jen and I were challenged to take a stand for what we believed to be true and right, despite being outnumbered in our stance. There was only one issue. We lacked the biblical knowledge to defend why we believed what we did. It was as if the conviction was there internally, but nothing of substance to show for it externally. We wanted to stand, yet felt no solid ground underneath so most of our quote-unquote standing was expressed through arguing with those we knew to be wrong. Afterwards, I was so deflated and humbled, 
We went home that night both feeling hurt, discouraged, frustrated, and confused. I mean, how, how could I claim to be a Christian when I didn't even know what it was I really believed? It would be like a person claiming to play professional football but not knowing anything of the game that he plays. It would be absurd. Yet it's exactly what many do with Christ, and I was no exception. Now, remember what I, what I stated. I absolutely hated to read. So naturally, reading the Word was extremely difficult for me to be engaged with, and I made a practice of neglecting such a discipline frequently. But that night, something was different. It was as if something awakened within me that had been asleep my whole life. Maybe it was more like a dormant volcano just waiting to erupt, one I had no idea even existed. As my wife lay asleep next to me, I prayed to God in a way I'd never done before. I was sincere and vulnerable and desperate to hear from Him as one who is broken and humble. Even more so, I desperately wanted Him to hear me. As I recall, I came to Him and I said something to this extent. I don't care what I have been taught or what I think I know. I want to know what you expect of me and what your word says directly from you. It was simple and short, but it was sincere and heartfelt. And for the first time that I remember, I felt like he truly heard me. That was the night that I took ownership of my faith and God took ownership of me. What God began in me that night is truly a miracle. As my passion for the word grew, Progressing to a point where I often ingested five to seven hours of scripture a day, burning the midnight oil on a daily basis, God began to fulfill his promise of Jeremiah 33 3 in me. I began seeing things in the world that I had never seen before, and the revelations, I'm sorry, I began seeing things in the word that I had never seen before, and the revelations were exciting and satisfying like nothing else I had ever felt. I had never experienced such strength before. Talking to God was so different than it had ever been in the past. It was as if we were actually conversing back and forth rather than just a monologue of empty praying. As I began to learn what it was to radically trust Him, He miraculously delivered me from temptations and fears, removing things in an instant that had held me captive for years. As I began to see more clearly through the Word what it means to follow Christ, I also began to notice things I didn't see lining up in the church and in others who proclaimed Christ as Lord in their life. The more I began to share with others all that God was revealing to me about what it means to follow Him, the more Jen and I began to lose friendships, be outcasted and excluded, which didn't make sense to me. Were they reading the same Bible as us? All I wanted was for others to share in this God-planted passion and excitement He had given, but it seemed as though the more we talked about the Jesus of the Bible, the more people began to turn away from us. Within a few years... I grew increasingly frustrated and discontent with the way many churches I knew functioned in comparison to the scriptures I was pouring over. In all honesty, my zeal and passion for truth in the beginning was so strong, I probably pushed others away who simply couldn't relate to what I was feeling, because they themselves had yet to come to a place of desperation and surrender as I now had. Maybe they were stuck as I had been in the system of Christianity instead of abiding union with Christ, and I wasn't patient enough to love them through it. I could focus on work. All I could focus on were my frustrations with feeling Jesus deserved more from those who had received His grace. For until you come to that place, a place of unadulterated passion, it isn't something you can explain, only experience. All that aside, I still believe Jesus deserves more. And I have a desire to see the church, the beloved of God, rectified to her former glory and majesty. I have learned to a greater degree how to couple my zeal for truth with His love for people, though I still have a way to go. To be the full embodiment of both as Jesus was. 
I am determined things can and should revert to the way they began, which is why, despite feeling very inadequate to do so, I'm writing this book. This return to glory will take us all, choosing to get out of our comfort zone and be willing to sacrifice control of our wants and interests in order to align ourselves with His will. To proclaim in one voice what our Lord stated in the Garden of Gethsemane, Nevertheless, not my will be... Excuse me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In all reality, shouldn't that define a Christian anyways? Galatians 5.24 Shouldn't we be so enthralled with the person of Jesus Christ that we long to see a return to the former majesty of the church, His body? If we are going to be a part of a true revival within God's people, then we are going to have to analyze what made the early church so powerful among the people. Let's look at one of the earliest known recordings of the church after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Acts 2.42 And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. If there was one thing that defined the early church, it was that their hearts and minds were set on things above rather than things on earth. Colossians 3, 1-3 They lived for a different kingdom, and it showed, as they didn't buckle to the pressures and demands of man or culture. The term for devoted in Acts two forty two implies constant attention to, earnest desire toward, perseverance in. It could be compared to the modern term addiction. In which these early believers had an intense hunger for fellowship, prayer, scripture, and sharing with one another in life that seemed to come from some inward source compelling them to these things. If they didn't have any one of them, it was as if they would face withdrawals until they would get their quote-unquote fix. That is why these four things governed the lives of the early church and were what their lives revolved around. It is also a cause and effect passage when you consider the very next verse. And all came upon every soul. When we make God the priority of our lives, He allows us a deeper awareness of His presence within. Despite the beauty of this pattern, this fourfold devotion is in direct contrast to what many people's lives typically revolve around today. Even in the church, we are not walking in the pattern set, and therefore not experiencing the sense of all they once did. Notice some things not listed here in what they were devoted to. Jobs, spouse, children, to name a few. Not at all that these things are bad or evil, or that the early believers didn't have them to deal with and think about. But it is most often the good things which hinder our progress in the great things. It is the things which are good that run the greatest risk of becoming the most deceptive idols in our lives as Christians. Remember, these four things listed in Acts 2.42 were what those in the early church were devoted to. They didn't view them as something that would only be done if they had time, or if it fit their busy schedules, or when it didn't interfere with their children's hobbies or their own. They were constant in their commitment to these things, because they wanted to be devoted to walking in truth. It is what the Spirit births and grows in someone who truly loves Jesus above all, because they aid in producing His life abundantly within Because of their devotion, the church grew in their unity and trust for one another. When someone can so easily lay aside the eternal end goal for something so temporal, no matter the reason, it breaks down the relationships within the church instead of build it up. 
Allowing these four necessities of the gospel to sacrificially govern their lives is what enabled the early church to be used mightily of the Holy Spirit instead of hindered from his power and life. Have you ever thought about how a sequoia or any tree for that matter is constantly devoted to living? Its whole existence is predicated on the fact it is constantly doing what needs to be done to grow and promote life within. Why are we any different with the life of Christ? It's like we are so concerned about our physical lives we neglect our more important spiritual life in Christ. We often bypass the need to grow in Him through devoting ourselves to things that produce His life within because we are too busy with the things of this earth. Why has it become so commonplace to prioritize the lesser over the greater in the church today? Why do so many neglect the need to devote themselves to any and all things which promote and cultivate the life of Christ and rather busy themselves with earthly things that promote and cultivate physical life, even good things? I fear we have too many Marthas and not enough Marys today. Luke 10 38 through 42. With regard to doing what it takes to cultivate spiritual growth, I encourage you to also read Luke 9, 24, 1 Peter 2, 2 through 3, and Colossians 2, 6 through 7. In fact, hold your place in this book, open your Bible to those passages, and read carefully. After doing that, let's look at another description of the early church. Acts 2, 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Can you honestly say that about your relationships within your local church family and how you interact with one another? I'm not saying to look at the speck in their eye as much as to first examine the log in your own. Do you seek to live like this with others you fellowship with? Do you feel like you are all on the same page and have all things in common? One of the greatest gifts God has given His church is our ability to be unified in spirit. It doesn't just happen because we have the Spirit. Rather, it is something that that has to be chosen and worked towards together as an end goal. That is why Ephesians 4.3 says that we as His church must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. The closer we grow to Christ, the harder it becomes for wedges to form. Thus, devotion to gospel-centered living is vital to the spiritual vigor of our souls. Look at the very next verse in Acts 2. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. How about this one? Do you see your church family truly functioning in one accord? How often do you hear about those who are choosing to radically minimize their lives sacrificially and on purpose in order to maximize their ability to sacrificially give? Reread that last statement carefully. Because I'm not talking about people who fall on hard times or who lose their jobs so they live minimally outside of choice. I'm talking about people like George Mueller, C.T. Studd, Hudson Taylor, or Peter Waldo, just to name a few. Those who choose to live minimally, regardless of the money that is attained, in order to maximize their giving. I will tell you these kind of lifestyle choices are rare to find in America today, even in the church. And yet it was part of what defined the majority of the early church. Don't you see something wrong with that? What is our minority today was the majority then. Again, not just looking at everyone else, but rather first analyzing your life. Maybe I should rephrase the original question. Are you choosing to intentionally minimize your life in order to maximize your giving? Are you choosing to devote yourself to the fellowship, prayers, scriptures, and breaking of bread in order to cultivate the life of Christ within yourself and others? 
You see, the mere thought of sacrificing control, selling our possessions, or even just yielding control of our time and money seems to create some sense of insecurity and fear in many believers today. But why? Why are we so scared to pick up the cross and obey simple instructions when our God has promised to be with us when we do? Let's look at just one of the passages showing what Jesus actually taught his disciples while on earth from his own words. Luke 12, 33-34 Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There are no three-step models to this one and no practical steps that I can give you to learn how to obey Jesus on this one. Jesus rarely teaches in such a capacity. Anyways, I can't give them because this verse hinges completely on your desire to follow Christ. He commanded simple obedience as a way to weed out followers from fans. Having to obey the hard commands, the costly and sacrificial ones, is what separates those who truly love him from those who pretend to love him. Which is why Jesus didn't teach baby steps like many do today. Now I've heard many different tactics to try to reason and justify why Jesus wasn't actually meaning what he said in Luke. But have you ever entertained the notion that he really was serious? What if he really meant what he said to them? What if, in reality, we are the ones who are trying to reason our way around a simple command? When I read the passage, he doesn't seem to be asking, but telling. Selling their possessions and belongings was a description of the early church because they saw his teachings as prescriptive. Again, I've heard all sorts of teachings on why Jesus isn't being literal, but frankly, all of them are absent of the cross. As a result, when they are weighed and measured against the truth of Christ, according to the cross of Christ, they are found wanting. Forget what you've always thought or how you grew up and just simply analyze the scriptures to see the example of Christ and his teachings in reflection of the cross. Separate today's culture and what seems normal to you from how you interpret the scriptures and just study out the life of Christ. What conclusions would be different from what seems commonplace today for most Christians in America? A popular question I've received in response to minimalistic and sacrificial love lifestyle is, how much do I have to give to be giving enough? I say this with respect and in love, but also with a passion to contend for truth. I believe those who ask that question reveal their ignorance of the gospel, their separation from the reality of the cross, and that their desires are not in line with God's heart. Who gave his only son. John 3.16 Compared to his sacrifice, do you think it even honors God to ask that question? Reader, please take a moment and think about that last statement before moving forward as we are talking about a most holy sacrifice from the most holy God. In light of the beauty of the cross and this sacrifice of God, I believe the proper question which we as Christians should ask is this. How much can I give? I fully believe that a person captivated with the inspiration and joy of Christ's sacrifice will be inspired to sacrifice all for Him. This includes how much we give and how little we choose to use on ourselves. It shouldn't matter how much we make. Our lifestyle should reflect the cross and no one is exempt from that reality. As Charles Spurgeon said, the greatest joy of a Christian is to give joy to Christ and sacrificially blessing others instead of ourselves is having the mind of Christ. For you, maybe that means choosing to get a basic car that suits your needs instead of that brand new luxury car you've always wanted, even if you could afford it. 
Or maybe it's choosing to radically downsize your current home to be freed up to bless the brethren, among others, in greater need than yourself. Perhaps you sell your TV and give the money to an orphanage, or your car to help that widow down the street who just lost her husband. Or maybe you're single, and you're still living with your parents, and you choose to work less so that you can sacrificially plug into the lives of people at your church. Could you imagine the response from the world if they saw the majority of God's church making intentional sacrifices like that? Instead of it being from just the few? I don't know exactly what it might be for you. But I do know that anyone who claims to follow Jesus must no longer live for themselves. But rather for God and his kingdom. So if we belong to Jesus, Galatians 5.24. And seek to follow him, Luke 9.23. We have a cross to pick up. And no one is excluded from the need to carry it. No matter how successful you are in your business. Another tactic I've heard from people who say that it's okay to live in self-indulgence is, well, as long as I don't trust in the riches, it's okay. They don't mean anything to me anyway. Let me tell you a story about when I was in high school. A friend of mine had a typical high school relationship with a guy. They would date, break up, date, break up, date. Well, you, you get the picture. One of the times they broke up, it was because he cheated on her with another girl. Heartbroken. She approached another friend and myself about the situation. She said, she asked him, how could you do this to me? And in typical immature high school fashion, he said, baby, she didn't mean anything to me. I love you. Her response, if she didn't mean anything to you, then why did you do it? Pretty fair question, don't you think? Despite what he said, his actions contradicted his words. I believe there will be many playing the role of this immature young man when they stand before God one day. 2 Corinthians 5.10, James 5, 1-6. Can you imagine approaching God in all of His glory, majesty, and holiness one day in heaven? Picture it. Seeing Him sitting on His throne with Jesus at His right hand and all the angels around the throne. Now you see all that Jesus chose to leave for you and what it cost the Father to give on your behalf. All of a sudden, the full understanding of what he sacrificed for you on that cross comes rushing to your mind. You now realize the price he paid for you and are humbled as you begin to think about all the worldly things you indulged in by choosing to live in luxury, self-indulgence, and comfort. And God, knowing your thoughts, looks at you and says, So why did you do it? Scraping the barrel of your mind for words, you say to him, But God, they didn't mean anything to me. I love you. To which God responds, then why did you have them if they meant nothing to you? Do your words contradict your actions? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Please go read Matthew six nineteen through 24 and James 4, 1 through 10 right now in the solemnity of this moment. After that sobering thought, let me ask you, where do you think the early church even got the idea to sell their possessions and belongings and distribute the proceeds to, to any among them? If not from Jesus, as we saw in Acts 2 and Luke 12. I can tell you it wasn't the common teaching from the Old Testament, that's for sure. If we as Christians are supposed to deny ourselves and pick up our cross daily, then do you think living a life of complete comfort and ease while others suffer is following the example of Jesus and his cross? Do you think giving the occasional handout from our leftovers while we live in worldly indulgence is bearing a cross? To be very blunt, I think we would have to be pretty naive to think it would be. I encourage you to read 1 John 2, 15-17 as you ponder that question. Maybe you have never heard of what the cost truly is to follow Jesus. 
Luke 14, 33. I understand that's a possibility in America, since we are bombarded with the heresy of the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, promoted by many today. If you have ears to hear, you are now being enlightened through the word, and are therefore left without excuse. Think about this question. What if we, as the church, truly let the cross govern our lives as commanded by Jesus? Just entertain that thought for a moment. Laying aside what you have always known or seen practiced in the church around you, what if we truly let the cross dictate our actions and lives in its fullest expression and measure? For us in America, it's hard to truly grasp what the cross really was, but to a Jew or Gentile in those days, trust me, they knew. That is why it wasn't difficult for them to understand that picking up a cross and following Jesus was no easy path to take. Comfort and ease, luxury and self-indulgence would not have been anywhere near their mental radar for what it means to bear a cross. Words like blood, pain, humiliation, hardships, suffering, and sacrifice would have flooded their hearts and minds. In fact, Paul says that he was the scum of the world, the refuse of all things to the church in Corinth, as an exhortation to them because of their worldliness, 1 Corinthians 4, 11-14. Why? Because he chose to love others enough by sacrificing his desires and the luxuries of this world, and the worldly-minded just couldn't understand. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. Doesn't Jesus say, The gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few? Matthew seven fourteen. What's really hard about living a life of ease and comfort, as we indulge in living just like the world, we just give a little bit on Sundays. What's hard about giving our 10% tithe while using the rest on ourselves to build our own kingdom? Don't get me started on the misconception of tithing in the church today. I am well aware that many who read this will misunderstand much of what has been stated. They will create all sorts of reasons in their own mind to justify why their lifestyle isn't sinful. Dismiss the absolutes of the word and make it relative to appeasing the God of their belly. Philippians 3, 17-19 we cannot reason away the cross of Christ and believe we are following the pattern of Jesus. There is so much more I would like to go deeper with you on this topic, as there is much more to cover. But I don't want to get too far away from the greater premise of this book. Maybe if the Lord leads and allows, that will be the topic of our next book. Now I know one could say this teaching sounds like legalism. Can I just say I really hate that term? Those who know me well know that when I say hate, I mean hate. It is not just an expression. Over the course of seven years in ministry so far, I have heard it used and abused by many uninformed Christians. So let me define the term. Simply put, legalism is strict adherence to a law or prescription. It can carry an extended connotation of excessive adherence, but when the word is fundamentally broken down, it is summarized as the practice of strictly adhering to legalities of some sort. I'm talking about the simple definition of the word, not how it is perceived or how many imply it in the church today. For example, a judge in a court of law would be considered a legalist since his job is to strictly adhere to a prescribed law. So according to his definition, a legalist in the church is simply someone who sees a prescription of commands from God in light of the new covenant and chooses to strictly adhere to obeying them in a devoted fashion. That actually doesn't sound that bad, right? It sounds like simple obedience to me. 
Isn't it sad that in the church today, every writer of the New Testament would be labeled a legalist by many, since they give specific commands which they expected to be followed in full, including Jesus? Dear reader, if we truly desire to have a heart like God's, then seeking to obey His teachings is never legalism. It is obedience stemming from an overflow of joy. I will fully admit there are times when the term legalist in the modern vernacular is warranted. Taking away a freedom we have in Christ by imposing man-made laws, forced acts of asceticism, or even reinstituting laws we in Christ have been freed from have no place in the church. However, we are never freed from the need to obey what we are commanded to do in Christ. What I have found is that most often those who quote the term legalism or legalist want to justify sinful patterns. They are generally just looking for an avenue to not have to count the cost and are seeking to maintain control of their own life rather than surrender it. That is why the notion of selling unnecessary excess and and choosing to live simply is offensive to many. It encroaches on their wants, desires, and control of them. What most don't realize is that the gospel demands the same requirements. People don't seem to have an issue with a doctor prescribing a list of do's and don'ts when it is for the well-being of a patient. But somehow in the church, it's restricting and legalistic for elders to prescribe biblically-based expectations for the well-being of the soul. Why is this? I believe it is because we have grown into a society much more concerned about the physical condition of our bodies than the spiritual condition of our soul. We are enamored with the physical, temporal, and earthly rather than enthralled with the spiritual, eternal, and heavenly. Many in the church have more loyalty to their country rather than their king, are more in love with their families rather than the family, and more concerned about their savings account rather than saving souls. Point is, we have become so focused on an earthly kingdom that we cannot submit to a heavenly king. I wonder what Paul would say to this misconception if he were alive today. Acts 20, 24, 1 Timothy 4, 7-10. I understand this concept is hard to fathom for many of us since many have been indoctrinated with the unbiblical concept of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But culture must rarely, if ever, dictate to us what is acceptable to God, especially if he has already spoken on the matter. Just because culture says we can, does not mean we should. A culturalized gospel is no gospel at all. The true gospel of Christ is rooted in this. The one who had it all chose to give it all away so that you and I could have life. 2 Corinthians 8.9 Is it really too much to expect that those who follow his pattern would do the same for others? Read 1 John 2.6 and Galatians 1.6-9 Now again, I want to be careful that I don't shame someone into forced obedience absent of the heart. For everyone has their starting place in which to progress towards finding, quote-unquote, that which is truly life. 1 Timothy 6, 18-19 Some will come to the Lord already having wealth, and there must be patience with them and encouragement in the good they do as they grow in learning how to implement the fullness of the cross in their lives. However, I also don't want to allow excuses to be made as to why many who say they follow Jesus look very little like him when it comes to how they love and spend their money. The reality is our lives should look like the life of Jesus no matter what culture we live in. As scripture, shocker alert, wasn't written from an American point of view. I'm not saying we must all wear sandals, have nowhere to lay our head, wear chitones, eat locusts and wild honey and all quit our jobs as we roam around as nomads as many did in Jesus' time. But I am saying 
that we should all take an honest look at our lives, truly evaluate them in light of the cross and in view of eternity. If we truly want to see a restoration of the church today, can you think of a better way to start than by imitating her as she imitated Christ? If you're wondering what you can do, just do something. Pray and ask the Lord what He would have you do and take a step toward it. Don't overanalyze your steps because we tend to do nothing when we analyze everything. As long as you're moving forward in obedience into the image of Christ, you're doing good. One of the greatest joys of my life was when we stopped living for ourselves materialistically, concerned about comfort and luxury, then began selling our possessions and giving to the needy. I can't describe the joy that radiated within as a result of us setting the course of our lives to be like the teacher, Luke 6.40. It is utterly impossible for anyone to truly understand this type of joy until they experience it. Because it is a joy cultivated within by the Holy Spirit when we choose to obey the call of the cross. With such a great blessing to be expected, what holds us back from letting go? Now let's look at another description of the early church. Acts 4.32 Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. To be clear, this was not the first mega church, as I've heard some proclaim. This initial influx of believers came at the time of Pentecost, in which Jews came to Jerusalem from all over the world to celebrate the memorial of God's presence descending on the people. This time it was part of God's great plan to bring witnesses to the gospel, so that it could then be dispersed throughout the known world. So they didn't stay in Jerusalem as one big mega church. Rather, After being instructed by the apostles, they were dispersed to their own towns to establish local churches. So with that said, let's get back to the main point I wanted to make with that scripture reference. The full number of those who believed at this time were of one heart and soul. Isn't that crazy? When was the last time you experienced this type of oneness in your church? I'm not talking about a theoretical oneness, but an actual expression of unity in heart, purpose, and soul with the full number that you gather with. It seems almost impossible, right? And yet, it is written. For just as in the Garden of Eden, there was a time in which perfection and oneness ruled until Satan took the opportune time to strike. Thus even now, we must resist him firm in our faith so that he cannot gain a foothold in our churches. We as the body of Christ must not be outwitted by his schemes to divide, as Ephesians 6.11 shows. Rather, we must put on the full armor of God so that we can stand against the tactics and schemes to steal, kill, and destroy. An example of this sort of scheming is found just a few verses later. For if you keep reading into Acts chapter 5, you'll see that it didn't take long for selfishness, control, and worldliness to creep its way into the church and attempt to divide the unity. But with the exposure of the scheme, you also see how it was dealt with and how serious God takes the purity of His church. Selfishness and double-mindedness are leaven, and it cannot be allowed to spread, or it will leaven the whole lump. Galatians 5.9 My point in all of this is to enlighten you to the fact that the early church lived as a family ought to live. They had their eyes focused on eternity and lived out their days seeking to please Christ and not themselves. They were taught by the apostles to do this because it's what Jesus taught them, to love the brotherhood as he loved us. That is why Peter says in 1 Peter 2.17, love the brotherhood. Did you know that the Greek word used for brotherhood only appears twice in all of the New Testament and both are in 1 Peter? Adelphotes is the word. And without getting too technical, it simply means functioning as the family of Christ. It's a command. 
It isn't a suggestion you might consider only if you feel like it, but a command that the Holy Spirit will birth within those who desire to live out a life fully pleasing to God. May the Holy Spirit increase your joy toward it as you choose to obey and submit. Now you might say, Dwight, you don't understand how hard it is to get along with some of these people. To which I would say to you, brother or sister, is it always pleasant for God to deal with you? To be clear, Jesus and the epistles both make it known numerous times that there will be those who are insincere in our churches, those who are obstinate and rebellious. They will be leaven, and the selfishness, worldliness, and hypocrisy must be exposed and even used as an example to the rest of the body. 1 Timothy 5.20, Acts 5, 1-11. Paul himself had to command certain ones to leave so that the error of their way would not rub off on the rest. He even went as far as saying that he was delivering two men over to Satan so the rest would learn to not blaspheme who we are called to be as Christians. 1 Timothy 1, 18-20. No, I am not talking about getting along with cancer. Cancer needs to be removed so it does not spread through the body. What I am talking about is seeking to love those who might be a little different than you or might believe slightly different than you. Maybe they come from a different background than you or they aren't as far along as you in this journey with Christ but are trying. We must learn to bear with one another in love. Ephesians 4, 1-3 And that requires both patience and exhortation in our united pursuit towards holiness. Hebrews twelve fourteen. Now getting back to Acts 4 as we continue to see the earliest traits of the church it also says Acts 4, 34-35 Emphasis mine. There was not a needy person among them, the brethren. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. It seems to be a common theme in the early church. The kingdom of this world was not what they lived for, for they were seeking the city that is to come. Hebrews thirteen fourteen. They understood well what Paul sought to establish in 2 Timothy 2, 4. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Since our aim is to please Jesus, then our pursuits must be that of soldiers, not civilians. So what if we are living like civilians? Then we show the cards of our heart that our aim is to not please Jesus. It doesn't work any other way. And there is no way around it. Jesus says, you will know them by their fruit. I'll let you compare how different civilians and soldiers are, as even the most surface of realities, in comparison, are super profound and convicting. According to Paul, our purpose in this life is not to blend in, but to stand out from this world. To be holy in both purpose and conduct. Our greatest strivings and labors are not to be for the food that will one day perish, or for the benefits of this world, but rather for the food that endures to eternal life. John six twenty seven, Luke twelve thirty two through thirty four. Brothers and sisters, I have an inner longing to see the church return to this model and blueprint of how she is to practically operate through the lens of the cross of Christ. And I believe it to be possible. But first, we are going to have to retrain our way of thinking. We must stop viewing any change from what we have always known as automatically wrong and get back to simply analyzing the scriptures to find out who we should be. We have to stop looking for ways we can justify and reason away simple commands while waiting for someone else to begin and just set our compass to obey, no matter the cost. 
I have been told on numerous occasions during my time of ministry that I will never build an Acts 2 church in America because such a vision is not possible. But you see, that isn't my goal, nor is it my vision. My aim is to be part of God building His church according to His Word and by His Spirit, one living stone at a time. 1 Peter 2, 4-5